0: Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. It's good to be with you today. Recently, our six-year-old daughter told one of her classmates that she goes to church. Her friend replied, what is church? How would you explain church to someone who's never heard of it before? If you had to fill in the blank, church is what would be your first gut reaction? To answer that question, our daughter made a drawing. She drew herself sitting in a chair with a smile on her face, listening to someone playing a guitar and singing, who she confirmed is Nick, depicted for some reason in a stripy green leotard. Below the picture, she wrote, I go to church for one to two hours. Apparently, in addition to the music, the duration of church is a major feature. Recent history has challenged our ideas of church. Political and social issues have made some disillusioned with the church as an evangelical institution. The pandemic has disrupted traditional practices and at times strained our sense of community. What is church now that we aren't always in a building on a Sunday morning? What is church in the context of so much division? Is the church irrelevant now? Does it matter if we belong to one or can we just do it on our own? There's a strong impulse in our self-sufficient society to withdraw when we're disillusioned or confused. But what if instead we used this time to re-examine what the church really is? Last year, when speaking about this volume in our church's history, John shared a vision of church as based on Jesus, of ecclesiology being informed by Christology, not the other way around. So perhaps it's appropriate that we're beginning the year by studying what has been called the most Christ-centered book in the Bible, the book of Colossians. What do we learn from this book about what church is? Well, today we're in chapter two, which is exciting because here Paul gets to his whole purpose for writing this letter, and it includes the core of the answer to that question. Now, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a people he's never met in a church he didn't start. The church at Colossae was likely founded by Epaphras, a co-worker of Paul's, who travels quite a long distance, some think over a thousand miles, to tell Paul about an issue so important that Paul wants to address it himself. He can't visit because he's imprisoned at the time, and Epaphras gets imprisoned too, and there's no Zoom, so Paul pens this letter and gets someone else to deliver it, because that's how important this issue was. The Colossian church had gotten mixed up in false teaching and become confused about their identity. What is identity? It's two things, who we are and what gives us worth. It's a sense of self and a sense of value. Now, we all have an identity. We all get that from somewhere, whether we're aware of it or not, and often we're not. Identity formation often happens without our conscious knowledge. It's indelibly pushed upon us by the culture in which we live, and if we want to examine it, we must do so intentionally, which is what Paul does here by laying out the belief systems that are forming the church's identity. Let's begin by reading our entire text for today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Then we'll examine how false and true identities function with a focus on what this tells us about the church, and we'll end with how to keep our identities centered. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, what are the false and true identities here, and what do we learn about them? Now, Paul jumps back and forth between the two, so rather than working sequentially through our passage, let's take a step back and imagine that we have a table before us with one column entitled False Identity and the other True Identity. For each, we can fill in four rows, what Paul tells us about their source, means, nature, and effect. The first thing we notice is that there's no one label for the false teachings Paul alludes to. No one really agrees on what is being singled out. There are elements of pagan spiritualism like asceticism, angel worship, and elemental spirits, and of Judaism like dietary and festival laws. Maybe this was not surprising. Colossae was at the intersection of two major highways and as a result had a diverse population with a variety of beliefs. Over time, people adopted a religious culture that was syncretistic, meaning a combination of different religions. And this mindset had apparently seeped into the Colossian church. Now there's something important here for us. The Colossian Christians weren't denying Jesus, but dethroning him. They gave Jesus a place, it just wasn't the supreme or only place. And that's our problem too, right? Our problem is not so much that we deny Jesus, but that he becomes just one of many priorities. He's one more item on the list instead of being the one through whom we see everything else on the list. That's what it means to be centered on something, to have one foci through which everything else has both source and sustenance. Now, despite their various characteristics, Paul tells us that all these false identities have a source that is according to human tradition, verse 8, and a means that is accomplished by human achievement. They all had a requirement to meet, whether it was experiencing mystical visions or following laws of behavior. Our culture is based just as much on achievement. Traditionally, this was conforming to a standard of code to honor the family or community. Nowadays, it's achieving self-discovery and self-expression. We worship the God within, the divine self. It's up to us to find our own meaning and fulfillment. Self-written narrative is the ultimate truth. We are measured by what we have achieved as individuals. In our culture, it's okay to be self-oriented, and we see this in our approach to faith. We read the Bible to get what we want out of it. We become frustrated if God does not answer our prayers in the way and time we determine is best. God becomes another tool in our worship of self, and church is no different. We want a church that meets our needs, that's convenient for what we're looking for, that's full of people just like us. And if church is going to work, we assume it's up to us to give people what they want. It's all about human activity measured by human expectations. We can overfocus on size and numbers and consumer-friendly programs. In the end, church becomes something that we achieve or that achieves something for us. What is the result of all this? Paul tells us that the nature of false identities are judgment, verses 16 and 18, and captivity, verse 8. They are shadows, verse 17, and empty, verse 8. He tells us their effect. They lead to pride, verse 18, and appearances only, verse 23. Ultimately, we may look good, but we're empty of substance, of any real power for change. And we know this, right? We know what it's like to appear good, but feel like an imposter. To stream or attend a service on Sunday, but not live any differently the rest of the week. We know how hard it is to find the perfect church that meets all our needs. And we've seen the destruction and moral failures that can result from the church centering itself around a celebrity culture or an alignment with power. What is the answer for all this? It's interesting. Paul does not counter with an alternate philosophy or standard. He's not like, quit worshiping angels, but play a lot of Matt Redman and people will show up. Paul counters not with something, but with someone, Jesus. The true identity that we have in Jesus has its source according to Christ and its means as not achieved but received by what Jesus has done. Paul says in verses 6 through 15 that Jesus is God who came in human form, died for us and rose again so that we can have forgiveness and grow in freedom from the power of sin. We have everything we need in him. That phrase placed first in the Greek for emphasis is repeated in verses 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, twice in 12, 13, 15, The nature of our true identity is thanksgiving, verse 7, substance rather than shadow, verse 17, and fullness rather than emptiness, verses 9 and 10, where Paul uses the redundant phrase wholefulness or fullfulness. The effect of true identity is growth, verse 19, and walking, verse 6. We receive what Christ has done and is doing for us and walk out from that in true growth and change. Paul is saying that the church is not something we achieve, but someone we embody. The church is not a program or a place, it is a person. The church is people gathered foremost around not a religious idea or spiritual practice, not a philosophy of life or political ideology, but people gathered around the person of Jesus because we believe that he is supreme and sufficient. That's what Paul has been talking about for the whole first chapter, that Jesus has absolute supremacy and soul sufficiency, that he has all authority and is completely enough. The church doesn't exist to please us. We as a church exist to please God. Eugene Peterson writes that what the church is is quote far wider, deeper, higher than anything it does, or anything we can take charge of or manipulate. Church is not something that we cobble together to do something for God. It is the fullness of him who fills all in all, working comprehensively with and for us. We do not create the church. It is. We enter and participate in what is given to us. What we do is significant. But what I am wanting to say is that there is more, far more to the church than us. Close quote. What we do is significant, but there is far more to the church than us. In fact, when we are oriented around Jesus, we can be doing the same things in a very different way. I remember teaching our kids how to write letters. There's a form we follow. We put our address and the date at the top. We use a greeting like, Dear so-and-so, and a closing like, Sincerely. Anyone who learns the form can write a letter. That's how my husband and I first got to know each other. We had never met in person. I was a medical student in Boston. He was living here in California. At the time, we didn't have text. I know, hard to believe. Email had been invented, but we both liked pen and paper, so he asked if we could exchange letters. And let me tell you, when you are writing a letter that is centered around someone, maybe someone you're trying to convince to like you, there's something about it that's different. His first letter was eight pages long. He mentioned reading something because I had read it. He asked what I cared about in life. He brought up his hopes for our friendship and more. And actually, one of the sweetest things I ever found a few years into our marriage was how in one of his old medical school notebooks, he had scribbled in the margins of his lecture notes ideas for questions he could ask me in his next letter. When you're centered on someone, you're thinking about them all the time. You're not just doing something for the sake of the form. You're doing it for that person's sake. You're wondering, what would they think of how I'm doing this? How can I get to know them better through what I'm doing? Are my larger goals here something that would please them? And it's like that with Jesus. When we're centered on Him, we're asking, what does it mean to do this for Jesus' sake? What would Jesus think of how I'm doing this? How can I get to know Jesus better through what I'm doing? What is this showing me about Him? Are my larger goals something that would please Jesus? This all changes how we approach our church experience. When we see that church is not about us, but about God, then, for example, instead of asking, How can the church please me? we ask, How can I, as part of the church, please God? Instead of asking, What can I get out of church today? we ask, What might God have for me to receive today? Instead of asking, How can the church give me what I want? we ask, how can I join in God's purposes here? Instead of asking, does the church agree with how I think about an issue? We ask, how can we learn what God thinks about this issue? Instead of comparing ourselves with other people or other churches, we measure ourselves by how God is asking us to live. This is not to say we don't have needs that a healthy church should be meeting, but that's not really what the church exists for. The church is not centered around us, around our politics or preferences or abilities. The church is the embodiment of Jesus. It is first and foremost about him. Now we get to the hard part. How do we keep our identities centered on Jesus? We have to ask this because look at what Paul says in verse 20. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's saying, why are you still operating under a false identity if you know your true one? The point is, it's easy to slip back. It's not enough just to be told our identity. It's not enough just to believe it for a moment or a day. Identity doesn't happen through declaration, but through formation. It's an ongoing process determined by how we live. So, how do we keep our identities centered on Jesus? I want to offer two questions for us to consider today, both out of verse 19, in which Paul gives us a picture of a Christ centered church holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Here's the first question. To what do you give your attention? What's the main verb there in verse 19? The main action we need to do. It's holding fast to the head. In Paul's day, the head meant two things to the body. It meant authority. To say someone was your head meant they had authority over your life in every way. And it meant sustenance. The head was seen as what gives life to the body. How do we know who or what we're holding to for authority and sustenance? One way is to examine who or what we give our attention to. If our boss sends us an email, we're probably going to read it. If the president sends us an email, we're going to read it even more quickly and carefully. The more authority we believe someone has in our life, the more we pay attention to what they may have to say. And what we pay attention to ends up being what sustains us, what informs how we grow. What we read, watch, think about is what shapes who we are and what we value, we live in a culture that's nonstop. We're bathed in media that's trying to solicit our attention. And while I'm glad you're tuning in today, there's no way that less than 30 minutes of a sermon once a week is going to compete with that. We have to think about how to regularly give Jesus our attention in how we live. The verb that Paul uses here for hold fast means a firm grasp. It's the way Herod seized John the Baptist when he bound him in prison in Matthew 14, or the way the king held and began to choke the servant who owed him a debt in Matthew 18. It implies a high level of force and intent. That's how we're supposed to hold fast to Jesus as our head. We have God's authoritative word to us right here in the Bible. How carefully and regularly do you read it? We have the person of the Holy Spirit within us. How conscious are you of honoring and listening to him? Do you give Jesus more attention than your social media, newsfeed, or streaming service? Do you give him your attention in ways that nourish you? That's the word Paul uses, nourished, taken in at a level that leads to growth. Do you desire to grow in spiritual maturity, and what steps are you taking to do so? Maybe this means you join a Bible reading plan, commit to memorizing scripture, identify a spiritual mentor, find a good book or class to engage in, set aside time for a spiritual retreat, build habits of prayer or solitude. Whatever it is, we have to find ways to hold fast to our identity in Jesus. Here's a second question. Who is your community? Paul doesn't say, holding fast to the head from whom the upper arm bone, nourished by itself, grows with the growth that is from God. He talks about the whole body that is knit together. Identity formation happens in the context of community. We naturally define ourselves according to how others see us. One way to see who we are becoming is to look at who we are connected to. And Paul says you must be connected to the church. That's the body he refers to here, joints that all belong to one head and therefore move together with purpose. We cannot church alone. No matter how spiritually mature we are, no matter how great our individual ministries may be going, we can't do it by ourselves. That's the great mystery and truth of the body. We need others to challenge us, to encourage us, to reveal things about God we couldn't see on our own, to speak into who we are. It's easy right now to feel disconnected at church. If that's how you're feeling, you're probably not alone. And I don't have some magical solution, but I think it begins with realizing how important connection is, with being willing to make space in our lives for it, being willing to pray about it, being willing to open up our lives in a very real and daily way to each other, being willing to persevere through conflict and differences, being willing to take initiative now more than ever. What does this mean for you? What's the next step for you to be more connected with others in the church? If we want to remain centered in Jesus, then we have to hold fast to Jesus as our authority and sustenance, and we also have to be knit together with each other. Why are you a part of the church today? Especially now, I guess very few of us are here by accident. What is church to you? What should church be to the world, and what is your part in that? Let's pray. God, I ask that your spirit would just cover over everything I've said just now. If there's anything that's not from you, would you remove those words and thoughts? But if there's any truth from your word that we can receive, would you settle that truth in us in a way that brings conviction and repentance and change and and a hunger for growth and a fullness, an experience of fullness in our lives? Help us to see the beauty of who we really are in you and the beauty of your church. Show us what it means for each of us here to walk together as a body that's your body in all the arenas of our daily lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.